Today's episode is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. With the NFL playoffs in full swing, make sure to check out the Ringer NFL show. Each week, the Ringer's Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, and Danny Kelly break down everything you need to know about the NFL postseason. You can subscribe to the Ringer NFL show on iTunes by going to iTunes.com backslash the Ringer or find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a Channel 33 podcast about the movies. My name is Sean Fennessy. I am the editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com and I'm quite lucky to be joined today by the writer and director Mike Mills as a new movie out called 20th Century Women in theaters January 20th. Mike, thanks for sitting with me. Yeah. How are you today? Good, good. Glad to be here. So this is a great film, an interesting film. Slightly difficult to describe. Do you Have yeah. you figured out your logline perfectly yet? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, the easiest way to do it is, you know, there's a set in 1979 and there's a middle-aged mother of a 15-year-old kid and she recruits these two sort of unlikely women to help her raise him. And it's sort of a story of a boy being raised pretty much solely by women and with a fairly strong feminist perspective. But that that doesn't do it justice. It's a, I guess, somehow I created something that defies being reduced down, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe that's part of my intention, but yeah, it's hard to like pitch it. A lot of the movie is obviously based on your personal experience. A lot of your your past two films have been deeply autobiographical. Mm-hmm. You know, your second film, Beginners, is about your experience with your father. This is about your experience with your mother in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Did you have any apprehension before you started writing this about diving back in so deep into your personal memory? Mm, well, my dad, so Beginners, it was about my dad coming out and then dying. And I started right after he died. So I was like intoxicated by grief. And grief can make you very brave and very willing to risk everything. Like for real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're on you're on drugs, you know. And so I was unsober when I made that. And then, but it, I liked it. I liked the whole process. And I used personal material not with the attempt to just make a memoir, but to find something real to share with other people, you know? So the intention all the way along the line is to find parts of it, the story that can be good for a movie, that could be good to share with strangers, that can be communicable, you know? And um, and then this came after that, and I had a little bit of my mom at Beginners, and I just sort of was, she's such a film character in herself and such an unusual woman, and... She's so interesting in relationship to history. And I'm really interested in like people, portraits of people that are very historically specific mm-hmm. um, and about how history shapes us. So she's like really apt to talk about that. Um, being someone who's born in the 20s and having me in the 60s and being like a, like a Amelia Earhart, Humphrey Bogart person in the 70s raising a punk rock kid, you know? Yeah. There's all these problems there. Yeah, so like weather vanes for every decade. Yeah. yeah. And also like um, she's, you know, very much a fish out of her historical waters in real life, you know. And then, you know, when you're making a movie about people that exist, people are so much bigger, longer, more complicated than a film version of them. Even if you're trying your hardest to capture them, you're going to capture like a slice of them, you know. So it's not like you're showing everything. And that somehow makes it easier, mm-hmm. in a way. And then just knowing that it's my version of them that's being cinematized, you know, it's not a documentary. If I was doing a documentary about them, that'd be more daunting, in a way. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested. I have a few questions about sort of the nature of accuracy, especially when you're dealing with your parents because you see them through this very specific prism. Yeah. How did you research your own life to do this? And then what, how did you determine what would end up on the cutting room floor? So with 20th century specific? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so 20th century women is more from a distance than uh, beginners. Beginners okay. was kind of like fresh memories that had a real grippiness to them and a concreteness. These are sort of like your family stories. You know, like you probably, everyone has family stories of that of your childhood. Sure. And so these are like more like lore a little bit. Um, but then all the details of Dorothea's life, like um, that she wanted to be a pilot, that she's the first woman to be a draft person at the Container Corporation of America, that she carved rabbits from Red Watership Down, that she smoked sandals. That's all my mom straight up. That she did stocks every morning, that she... When she died, she was worried about Y2K and, you know, got water and put 18 grand of cold, gold coins in the bank of Montecito. That's just very exactly, you know, from life. When you're writing something like this that is personal, but also you're hoping millions of people will see it. Millions. Oh. I like millions. I like your ambition. Tens of <laughs> hundreds. Um, do you... Do you picture your mom saying it, or do you picture a movie star saying it? Is it just something that is more abstract than that? Well, well, my mom died in 99, so I'm writing this. I started in 2011. So she's been gone for a while. Mm-hmm. So if I concoct her up in my head, which I did a lot when I wrote it, it's, you know, I'm even aware that this isn't mom. This is, you know, my best attempt to remember mom. But there's, that's one thing that's very sad about losing people in grief and stuff like that is the farther away you get from when they died they they you lose a little bit of them like every year mm-hmm. you know and your ability to bring them up so even as i was writing i knew that i was dealing with a odd version of my mom that wasn't really exactly her mm-hmm. um and i don't really think of actors it doesn't work for me it doesn't help me write and it, it doesn't work technically like you never get the person you thought you were going to get you know sure. and so um, there's this weird hybrid that's going in my head. And sometimes, to be honest, I'll, I'll be sort of flirting with an actor in my head over this three-year process of writing the script. And it'll kind of come and go, you know. And that might work for a week. And then often I'll be like, ah, crap, I just kind of wrote a bad version of the film I just saw them in. You right, know? right. So I'm not sure it helps at all. How do you avoid that? How do you avoid colliding the business element of thinking about who's going to be in this role with st- doing something that stays true to you? Well, because when you're writing, you're, you're, the process is so long, at least for me, that it, sometimes I don't win that battle and I am trying to cast someone castable in my head and they're infecting my script. Mm-hmm. For me, ultimately, writing gets to this place where it's like, okay, I can't do this. I'm completely screwed. And uh, this is my last film if I get to make it. And I shouldn't be doing this and I'm, I'm screwed again, you know. <laughs> so since this is my last film and I'm screwed and I have nothing to lose and the plane's going down, I might as well just say what I fucking think, you know. And I always get to that spot. And that's, that's actually where I really write from. Uh, yeah, and I know a, a lot of writers who can identify with the <laughs> desperation and the knowledge of failure yeah. going forward. Yeah, I have a certain amount of time for the plane hits the ground. Let's try to get the scene done, you know. <laughs> I read that an early version of the the movie included a father figure character Uh and that eventually you decided to remove that character. Uh Was there any concern, you know, about 
creating a little bit of distance from the actual part of your actual experience uh-huh. where your parents were living together versus what you ended up putting on screen? Well, that wasn't why the father left out. And the father figure that was in the film, they were divorced. My parents were never divorced. Mm-hmm. So it, was, it was already like away from my life. Okay. And I do like when things are things that I observe. It doesn't have to be my life. Like Greta's character is based a lot on my sister. Elle's character is based on a lot of women I knew. Mm-hmm. So at like A the, lot of women. <laughs> she's three. Okay. And then some of her details come from women that I interviewed now or when I was writing who were that age then. Okay. So like her period story or her her losing her virginity story come mm-hmm. from friends of mine. Okay. So in that way she's lots of women. Um, but anyways, having real people or things I observed, I really like that. I really like it's like a slightly journalistic, slightly documentary approach. Mm-hmm. And it gives me like a North Pole. But I have someone out there that I'm trying my hardest to understand and to capture and to bring to life that this gives me a mission I find much more positive. You know, you know, I read that the wooden rabbits that your mom carved and her jewelry, you know, uh-huh. Annette Benning wears it. She uh-huh. plays Dorothea, the, the protagonist, I guess, of the film. Yeah, um, yeah. Is that also to sort of make you feel comfortable, like you're doing something that is more documentary-esque or is it just for authenticity? How do, how do you make those choices? Uh, it's not for me. It's for... Um, it's a little bit of everything. It's also cheap. <laughs> and my movie is a tier one movie. Like every dime you have to think about, like every dollar. So if I can get some free jewelry, yes, it's amazing that it's my mom's bracelets and they're perfect and they're, and they're really unique and special. And it adds a little bit of magic to give them to Annette Bening. Mm-hmm. And then Annette Bening's willing to wear them. Yes, it's enchanting the whole situation and, and adding like a gravitas. But no one needs to know that. The people in Arclight Theater, whatever, right. they don't know about it. That's fine. They don't need Should to know about it. Should we cut this out of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> people like to talk about it, but and that's fine too. But um, it's it's free. Uh, there's also a lot of furniture in the movie that's from my house and paintings and the amazing bedspread. And it's, one, because my parents had amazing taste. It's totally indigenous to the, my portrait of them. It's the right stuff. Mm-hmm. And I can drive it down to my Volvo. You don't need a Teamster to bring it down. You don't have to pay a <laughs> rental for my house. So like I saved like... Like ten plus grand just there, you know. Was it ever surreal to walk on the set and be like, "This feels awfully familiar to me"? It's kind of a weird way of having presence with them, mm-hmm. you know. I find it sort of heartening, and I come from a family who, I guess, in some mostly unconscious, mostly unspoken ways, kind of like abandoned themselves a bit. You know, my dad tried to pretend he wasn't gay, and my mom. Early, it's not part of the story, but she tried to pretend that she wasn't Jewish, and mm-hmm. she tried to pretend that she was fine with that. And kind of, they both abandoned key parts of themselves. And I think as a kid of theirs, I sort of psychically sensed all that. Mm-hmm. So then, to make a movie about them and making a movie about someone sort of the opposite of abandoning them, it's a move in the right direction, sure. you know. And it's just like like generally benevolent vibe. <laughs> it doesn't feel like exposing. It doesn't feel like raw. Even like filming my dad dying, and that really impacted Ewan. Like Ewan bawled his head off, like for real. And I did, but because of Ewan, not because of filming, like recreating my dad. And it's like, uh, or scenes in a hospital or anything like that. If you ever had anything like that happen to you, mm-hmm. you should make a movie about it because when you make a movie about it, you're completely in control. Yeah. And that's not really happening. <laughs> and it's like really easy. You know, it's like, People think it's like, oh, you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm directing a movie. I love directing. Yeah. So it's it's not as quite as personal and 
as I think people think it is. I've thought about that even just while we're talking. You're being extremely honest and open about something that is obviously most people have difficulty even communicating about, right. let alone in interview <clears throat> after interview. You know, yeah. is it at this stage? Does it give you a more closeness to that feeling, or is there more separation now? Now that you've like created a piece of art or two pieces of art about mm-hmm. these profound moments in your life, mm-hmm. do you feel closer to understanding what was happening at those times? Well, the, I mean, the other part of this. For me personally, it's like I've been in therapy since I was 28, right? And so in therapy, you, you, you explore yourself not just in a solipsistic way, hopefully, but like studying to fucking figure yourself out and get out of this prison you made for yourself, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm used to thinking about this, and then I kind of feel like I've been talking like this for years, <laughs> not just this movie. Right. And I feel like if you're being interviewed <clears throat> and someone's taking the time to listen to you, you owe it to that listener to be straight up and not just self-promoting. Mm-hmm. So since I make these movies about like personal life and what it's like to be a parent or a child or deal with all these issues, I kind of feel like it's my part of the contract is to like add something hopefully honest and revealing to the human compost pile, you know. Uh, and um, and like Ginsburg does that a lot. I love Ginsburg in interviews. Um, uh, James Baldwin does that a lot. I love James Baldwin interviews. So I'm kind of chasing my heroes a little mm-hmm. bit also when I talk like this, you know, or try to be open. I mean, you make a movie like this, you can't not, how could you not, how could you all of a sudden be like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't you know. know. People are funny. There, <laughs> Some people are more closed off than others. Or they yeah. try to at least be a little bit more elusive about sort of what yeah, is yeah. true and what isn't true. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'm not smart about that. I, no, no. It's, you know the, you know the nice. Elena Ferrante approach mm-hmm. sure and that you know that new book it's all her letters and her for those who don't know like she's this amazing Italian author who works under a pseudonym who never um, reveals herself and doesn't want her real life she writes from real life but she doesn't want to talk about it and she doesn't want to let her persona interfere with the work the work is its own piece she wants to respect the work by not talking about it I sort of do the opposite <laughs> I tell everybody everything but I, and I but I really I really respect her deal. This is what makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. But it's an ongoing thing, too. I might not do it next time. Why did you choose 1979 as the time to set the movie? Uh, partly because it's when it, when I was that age-ish, you know. And uh, I wanted to talk about my mom being that age and me being that age. Mm-hmm. So that means it's around then. Sure. <clears throat> Somewhere in late 70s, early 80s. And and I want to talk about I my I want to talk about my real mom. So that means she's a woman that's born in twenty five. So that means if I want to talk about her middle age, you're somewhere right about there. Mm-hmm. And then seventy nine is really interesting to me because it's it's seventy nine. It's um <clears throat> it's like I feel like it's like the end of post war America and the beginning of now. If I'm going to be like historically pretentious. Wow. That, it's uh, the end of yeah, the 60s, it's the, right. end of the, cal- it's the beginning of the end of the calendar culture, it's the beginning of the end of industrial America, the car, that's why I had the car burning at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's the beginning of the end of the working class and the middle class's real importance and like our sort of more left-leaning version of America. You know, going from Carter to Reagan is a real sea change. It's the beginning of the personal computing explosion. Like Apple's about to go public in a year. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Saddam Hussein just became the president of Iraq. The Iranian rev the Islamic Revolution just happened in Iran. Um, Are you or, researching and trying to arrive at all of that information before you start writing? Are you saying why is this the right time? Well, I know I'm. I know I'm, when I started, I knew I wanted somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. You know, somewhere between seventy-seven and eighty-two. Um, and then I do a lot of. I love Wikipedia, <laughs> and I love researching. I love I love that a script gives you permission or a job to go research whatever you want, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I and then I when I found Carter's speech, and that was in the summer of '79. I was like, "Oof, that's so amazing!" To the themes I can already feel that are going to be central. Yeah, you're you know? talking about the crisis of confidence crisis, speech. Yeah, or one of the main parts of it is talking about how we've lost meaning in our lives. And all my characters are trying to figure out who they are and the meaning of themselves and the meaning of their lives. So I, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I'm interested in is how our small personal stories are shaped by and fight against the larger historical story that's going mm -hmm. on, larger historical tendency. And then 79 is interesting. Like a lot of Coin of Scotts, was film then. Mm -hmm. Came out later, but it was filmed then, and that just life you have out of balance. Flashes of that movie in, in yeah. your film. Yeah, it's like kind of sampled inside my movie and, mm -hmm. and labeled. Uh, and but Conan Squatsy is talking about life out of balance. Um, um, the Queen David Bowie song "Under Pressure" is eighty, but I feel like it, right around there, people are all talking about this crisis of confidence, this uh, future shock, uh, the world going too fast. And it's so sweet to think of us thinking that in a pre-digital age mm -hmm. that 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 the world was going too fast, you know. Yeah, there's something um, meaningful about a group of people sitting around and watching that Carter speech. I think, especially given where yeah, we are at this moment, it yeah. feels uh, almost alien to yeah. imagine that. But the way that you portray that scene is really interesting because it gives us a lot of insight into Dorothea and yeah. how she sees the world. And a lot of the people in the room are cynical about. Carter's optimism and his thoughtfulness, and yeah. um, you know she's she's quite moved. You know, was that was that a moment in your life? Did you land on that, or did that feel like a part of these fragments of history that you were trying to stitch together? Um, it's both. My mom loved Carter because he wore jeans in the White House and he was the peanut farmer president. My mom, being like a depressionary kid in that time, America is much more socialist, is much more anti-authoritarian. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at all those movies from the 30s and 40s, there's all the humor is so anti-authoritarian. Look at Bogart. He's, he's constantly finding the man and the powers that be. And he's a huge movie star, mm -hmm. you know? And my mom was infused with that kind of sensibility and politics, mm -hmm. you know? And so Carter, of course she loves him. He's unpretentious. She, he's, he's a working man. My mom loved working people. So in making a portrait of my mom, Carter is easy to associate with her. It's mm -hmm. like in her orbit um, and then finding that speech just sort of made it like sunk made it perfect but I, I don't remember watching that speech at the time uh, and I, I knew about that speech but I can't remember how I knew about it um, there's a great book called the Con cultural history of punk rock mm -hmm. and it's a lot about just like 70s stuff and how Carter is like the president of one boredom and two punk and 
and three, kind of like a matriarchal president. Like he's not a patriarchal president. And yeah. the 70s is kind of like a feminine decade in there's a way. There's an empath, yeah. Mm -hmm. And doubt and, mm -hmm. uh, and inner life and spirituality and just not patriarchal strength. Like talk about like hearing Trump on the radio today. Like it's a completely different dynamic. I was just reading about Carter actually because he sold the peanut farm that he built from the ground up before he took <laughs> office, uh, which is something obviously uh, President-elect Trump is not yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, any coincidence that your movie is opening wide on uh, Inauguration Day? Um, <clears throat> I don't think so. You know, that's in the hands of the geniuses at A24. Mm -hmm. When that was set, it seemed like Hillary was going to be president. Yes. I will say that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they were thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, and what that is that am I doomed now? <laughs> could, could be more resonant or less. It's hard to say. Um, we we were talking about Hillary a lot because like we're thinking all this up in September, mm -hmm. <clears throat> like the actual release of the movie August September, and um, yeah, it's really I wonder if it's, anyone could ever do sort of a autopsy of my movie and see like <laughs> how the what what it's meant I'm curious what's happened in the world about um how you eventually landed on this cast I think it's every performer that I already knew doing their best oh, work that's nice. um how did you land on everyone uh well it's definitely like a constellation you can't you can't cast any one of those people in isolation mm -hmm. right and it all depends on who you have, right? So it starts with a net. I needed to have the my son first, my the the center of my galaxy. And you just don't know if you can get someone like a net. And we had to center the script, and luckily she liked it, and she responded right away. And we had a great dinner, and she was very open to all the contradictions I put in the character and just curious about her in a way that I really liked mm -hmm. and coming at it from as a mom and as a middle-aged woman and, and like like to me that's really important that I have some sense some kind of psychic sense because you don't get to audition the person that it's going to impact them or stir their blood or have some overlap with their life so they're going to bring to this character their own chaos you know like their own inner stuff um, and then so once I had her, I'd, I'd, I'd been thinking about Greta a lot, and that seemed great. Mm -hmm. They seemed like a really neat duo, yeah. and that would like each other. They're different generations, but they're both unusual women. Mm -hmm. They're not totally just just traditional feminine women, and and that my character Greta's character is an artist, and Greta is a writer director. Greta is a maker artist person, so that just fit that person. Mm -hmm. And then Elle really suits it in a way that, to be honest, I didn't understand when I cast her. And that happens a lot where casting is like finding lovers. You don't know why the deep reasons why you pick the people until later it's revealed to you, you know. And and I try to be alive to that actually when I'm casting. Um, but when I met with her, I said, like, you're so nice, you're so happy, you're so together. This person's so broken apart and unresolved and un unclear and un and I don't know, like self hating in mm -hmm. ways. You seem so different than that. How can you do it? And she she's like, Oh, I just will. And I was like <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a horrible answer, you know? But like on the page, 
word for word. It's a horrible answer, right? It doesn't explain anything. But the way she said it, there was a certain kind of metal to her. There was a certain kind of strength that I was like, I don't know, my, my sternum bought it. Yeah. You know? And then once I got to know Elle, she's a lot like the girls I was writing about where they're very pretty, very blonde, and you can write them off very easily as sort of like sex objects or whatever. Just not give them the seriousness that they deserve. And I had female friends that were like pretty like Elle and having complicated sex lives. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't a sexual partner of there, but I was a friend who they'd come over in the middle of the night loaded and tell me everything that happened, these two girls in particular. And and I would learn kind of the more complicated dark side of it all. Not just dark, but like their perspective. And um, Elle has so much depth. And if you have her follow her instincts, it often goes to a very heavy place, you know. And, and um, just a lot of what's the word, like density, you know, and it's, it was so, and like, um, she's, she's like wildly unromantic, that character. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks that like a girl like that would be, and, and I'm talking like sexist tropes that we project onto women like that. Um, and so Elle was an amazing soul to undermine these sexist tropes that everyone is projecting upon her. Did you want there to be something in common among all three of those women? You know, I think of the scenes where they are sort of interacting one-on-one and you can, there's a little bit of a shadowing image even when they're disagreeing with each other. I love that scene yeah. when Elle and Annette are in the car together <laughs> yeah, yeah. when she pulls over to the side of the road. Yeah. You're good at hiding stuff, huh? My mom calls it compartmentalizing. Apparently I do that a lot. Are you helping him? I'm trying. Really? What about you? Have you thought about your impact on him? It's always about the mother. Like, do you think you've moved on since his dad? You know that you're not actually a therapist? (laughs) I've had new guys, okay. No one appropriate. Appropriate? Guys you're not going to risk anything with. Men you don't even really like. Listen, you're 17, okay? Maybe you don't know what's good about these guys that I really like. I'm talking about you. You never seem into it. You can see them jousting in a very specific way, like almost like they're equals, even though one girl is 17 yeah. and one woman is yeah. you know, in middle age. Well, I wanted them all to be really smart mm-hmm. or, um, and not afraid to, I don't know, like just be non-compliant, right? And not, they're all pretty strong. That's the word. They're mm-hmm. all strong, I think. Um, I, find, I find Abby, Greta Gerwig's character, and, and Benning's character to have a lot of similarities. And that sort of proto-feminist, Amelia Earhart feminist, mm-hmm. and Greta sort of second wave feminist. And there's, there are connections between those two strains of womanhood. And then Elle's sort of like a weird outlier. Like she's going to be into Madonna in like four years, you know, and be <laughs> that kind of feminist, right. you know. And, and, and she sort of unnerves both the older women in the movie, I, I find. And she's, neither of those women can get a handle on her, you know. Um, and it was really fun to have these three different generations, three different 
I don't know, like micro-historical perspectives at the same table. Have you uh, taken the movie back to Santa Barbara? I'm curious <laughs> where this, how Santa Barbara is responding. There's not a lot of great Santa Barbara movies, I feel like. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, there's, there's some people who knew my parents still around. Mm-hmm. So that was nice. We had, we had a screening there, and there's, there's some people who, who knew my mom. So that, that's a trip. And it's at the theater that I went to as a kid. So okay. that's a trip. And Santa Barbara looks the same. Like, mm-hmm. like the places we shot look exactly like they looked. And I walked on all those streets as a kid. Those streets are right around my house. Wow. So, so and that creek, my sister hung out in that creek, you know. So it's both very evocative, you know, and very, um, um, my childhood. Um, and it's also a different place. You know, I, I left when I was 18 and I'm 50. So, yeah. And my dad died in 2004 and we sold a house, you know, so we haven't had a house there for a long time or, um, and it's changed a lot. So it's also a very different place. But it's, um, yeah, I don't feel like incredibly connected to Santa Barbara in terms of just like when I'm there, like the things that are there, but like those trees, those the oak tree grove, the beach, the mm-hmm. air, the atmosphere, the wind, the sound of the crows, the sound of the tree. You know, I guess this is all like the landscape of my childhood. That's very, um, like, super interwoven with me. I don't know exactly what's going on in Santa Barbara. <laughs> right. I get you. <laughs> I don't know what everyone's really saying. So. I wanted to ask you about the collage quality a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was thinking specifically of the beginning of the movie where you have water and a car on fire. Mm-hmm. You have talk of a dying man and then an infant you know you have Mm. a mother and a son and then obviously we talked about some of the films that you interweave into the piece some of abby's photography and Mm -hmm. the way that you use photography in your films Mm -hmm. how do you make those choices it's something you've obviously used throughout your career but Mm -hmm. it's really really refined and beautiful in this movie oh thanks um i i love it when other people do that like Mm -hmm. i went to art school didn't go to film school what films do they show at art school they show godard a lot so i'm obviously very indebted to him and like two or th- three things I know about her or Pierre Le Fou. Like there's so many of his films that have like a great graphic sensibility to them and a great sort of, it's a dumb word, but like multimedia mm-hmm. in a sense. And I went to school with like a conceptual artist named Hans Hacke and there's artists like Hans Peter Feldman. There's a lot of different conceptual artists who work <clears throat> in this semi-archival way. And that really excites me. Mm-hmm. And I like sort of, I find it very kinetic and kind of pop and exciting. And this movie is a little different than that. I use a lot of texts like Judy Bloom's book or The Road Less Traveled and I credit them in the thing and Koyan Squatsky and I credit it on screen. I find that super exciting and disruptive in a really interesting way personally. And it's deeply interwoven with the story and the portrait and, and c- constructing the world that is these people and their lives. But it's also like pointing out the fiction of my movie and it's sort of just a disruption of the movie, uh, what is it called, like etiquette, you know, the, sure. the suspension of disbelief etiquette, which I, drives me nuts, I guess, a little bit. I think it inevitably also <laughs> just pushes people towards things they don't know about. If you put yeah. Kainakatsuki on the screen, people yeah. are like, what is that? I don't yeah. know what that is. And then they're forced to yeah, yeah. You know, confront it if they like the movie. Yeah. And there's a lot of great music in the film. The music's all historically accurate. And, and to me, is another like text that I'm applying. And then people talk about the music in the movie. So another, like, I do think that we figure ourselves out in relationship to 
cultural stuff. Like for me, music was such a key thing mm -hmm. to like understanding just my emotional life or what I was feeling, which for me was a hard thing to figure out, you know, and there was no modeling for that inside my house. Um, and so that's always been endlessly interesting to me. And was it hard for you to, I wanted to ask you specifically, there's a handful of songs, <clears throat> clearly songs that your mother loved and that were on in the house and songs that were really important to you uh -huh. in the late 70s, Buzzcocks, Talking Heads, uh -huh. Raincoats. Was it difficult for you to choose the handful of songs oh, that yeah. were representative? I was oh, thinking yeah. about if I had to put myself in that position to say, <clears throat> these are the four songs that I listen to all the time. Yeah. And then certain things work. Mm. Like... I'm not the biggest Devo fan, but mm -hmm. oh my God, that song worked great in my yep. movie. And uh, how is there not a television song or a Patti Smith song in this movie? But those songs like don't sit back in your film. Right. And then, yeah, I'd, I'd love to play television. Um, uh, what's it, that, their main song? Marky Moon. Marky Moon. But then you're like, oh, it's so lame to put Marky Moon in a movie in a way because, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like so name droppy or something. Sure. But that, that song can, that song's amazing. I've tried it and it's like, it's like butter, you know, some of those long guitar parts. Mm -hmm. But like Patti Smith, it's just not polite. Her, her shit does not sit back in your movie. Yeah. And it's like Patti Smith. So you end up picking some things that are surprising in a way. But like the Buzzcocks, why can't I touch it? That was always in my script. That was like the end Buzzcox plays. You know? I think that song is, um, <clears throat> for people who see the movie, is going to have a second life in a weird way. There's yeah. a lot of people who are going to understand it. Yeah, and it very much fits. As, you know, It looks so real, why can't I touch it? It tastes so real, why can't I taste it? it you know, um, that's, that that's, sums up the movie in so many ways. It resonates right now, too. Yeah. Um, so you've done these two extremely... Um, <clears throat> deep and thoughtful looks at your parents. Uh -huh. How do you figure out, you want to keep making films, how do you figure out where to go from here, given that I think you must feel proud of these two movies, right? Um, I feel very lucky. You know, making movies is a very vulnerable making thing. And even if it goes well, you get bad reviews and you get hated on and, or you don't get what you thought you should get. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like a roller coaster ride. And, um, but ultimately I sleep at night <laughs> and I, and I don't sleep about my movies. I basically sleep at night. Basically, that's not even totally true. I can get anxiety ridden and self-hating in a, on a dime. Uh, but, uh, I, I feel lucky. I, I'm glad I made them. Put it that way. Okay. Like proud's almost too strong a word. But uh, but I'm glad I made him. I'm luck. I feel really lucky I made him. It's such a huge cultural privilege to get to make movies and to make a personal one is like crazy, and that they did well enough, and that I do have a lot of nice responses from people. That's really meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. It's really meaningful, and and like in my life, it's like I feel like, well, if I'm good at anything, apparently I'm decent at this, or like I've made some connections with strangers, and that's like super rewarding. Do you, are you excited or looking forward to any of the additional awards things to come? That's always a very, sometimes a I fraught think, question. Yeah, I think we're not, 
I'm not sure how well we're going to do in all that world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, like, people are talking so strongly about Annette getting nominated, and now that's not even for sure at all. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. That's part of, like, this roller coaster ride I was talking about. You just don't, it's just an odd scene. Do you validate it all against those things, or do you try to ignore them? How do you engage with it? Oh, it's a total mixed bag. Like, whenever you do get something, it's it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it helps your film a lot. So that's all great. And then when you don't get them, you're like, shit. <laughs> um, like, I, I was really proud of the script when we didn't get nominated for the WGA thing. And I was like, oh, that hurts. And I, like, I joined the WGA <clears throat> on this film, you know. I was like, glad I paid those dues. You know? <laughs> um, so so it, it's, it's, it totally wallops you. It is a roller coaster ride. You try to just, like, rest on the few good things you have. That, mm-hmm. it's, hard to, it's hard to have anything feel meaningful. Mm-hmm. And to understand what your film really means to people or how it's going over. And then as a director, of course, a lot of people come to you and go, oh, nice film. But it's like, it's like you're the groom at a wedding. Like, what, is, what are people going to say? <laughs> only, like, only like a real brave person comes up and goes, like, that sucked, you know? <laughs> well, I think it's specifically you find yourself in an interesting position where people, you're so honest about <clears throat> the fact that this is about you and about yeah, your yeah. experience, too, that it would be doubly cruel yeah. in a way to confront so, you with people that. People do tend to save it for online. Or, like, some reviewers let me have it, for sure. Do you uh, ever, um, are you the kind of person that will sneak into a theater just to see how people are feeling about it? That happens more at the beginning. Like, um, and when, you know, part of the editing process is so much sitting in theaters with people watching it. Mm-hmm. And by the time I finish my sound mix, like, it's, like, painful to watch the movie. Like, I... But I like watching little bits, you know. Mm-hmm. It's very nerve-wracking. Well, I see the end a lot because I come for Q&As. Oh, that makes sense. <clears throat> Are you at peace with the end now? Do you, do you... <laughs> I've always liked the ending, so that's a good, that's good. thing. And uh, uh, like we premiered at the New York Film Festival, and it was really hard for me. To, like I could stand behind the closed door and listen to people laughing or you know not laughing. And um, but yeah, it's really hard to find meaning. And then like once in a while there's a review or something or some, some friend said something or some other filmmaker said something. Often for me, that's, that's other filmmakers. And they'll say something really genuine and like, okay, I'm going to hold on to this mm-hmm. one. Like I'm going to hold on to this email or whatever they said. But then you, you find yourself discrediting it in your head, you know, or, or you just you, any negative thing you hear, you kind of glom onto it. And um, so it's, a, it's an odd process. Well, Mike, thank you for being here. Let me say that with sincerity that I loved it as well. Oh, thanks. Um, and that I hope a lot of people see it. It's a Thanks. Really great movie. It's 20th Century Woman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Yeah.